Welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're in the Big B, Mighty B Boston, up here in Massachusetts, where it's beautiful, sitting right in downtown, with the VP of Specification Sales for the Boston office, Ira Rothman. Ira has nearly three decades of experience in the lighting industry and has recently joined Apex Lighting Solutions to develop a Boston office for the last four and a half years. Ira, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me in Boston. How are you doing? Welcome to Boston, Sam. It's wonderful to be here. I've never really spent a lot of time in Boston, but I came for the first time for an extended period of time for the IES conference two years ago. And my buddy looked at me and he goes, do you see that over there? And he was pointing to the seaport and he goes, None of that existed 10 years ago. Uh, that's and that's correct. Yeah, and that's where I'm staying. And it's it's really just beautiful what they've done in terms of redeveloping the city. And I feel like they're bringing a lot of life into it. I always heard, you should see Boston. You should see what's going on. So it, it must be fun to be here and, and in the business of selling lighting. That Seaport District is one of three areas in the United States that has the most square footage under construction at one time. How many square feet are under construction? About 10 right million. Really? Wow. That's a little bit bigger than my house. Just, just a little bit. I mean, that's like, that's the size of most airports, I feel like are 10 million square feet, but it's residential, commercial, retail, hospitality. It's, it's got a little bit of everything in it. So GE at one point, I think was going to put a big office down there too. It's uh, in design. It is cool. That's awesome. Well, Ira, it's great to be here. And, you know, today I thought it would be fun to just talk a little bit about how we define the channels in the architectural lighting community from how it's designed, how it's procured and how it's built. There's a lot of people that get involved. And when we get into a project, sometimes it's less obvious who does what. So to bring clarity to that is always helpful. But before we get started, who is Ira and how did you get into lighting? I would think that my recollection of my sort of first awareness of commercial lighting was through my family back in my hometown of Pittsburgh. They had a lighting uh, showroom and distributorship called Northern Light. It doesn't exist anymore. It's closed now, but Northern Light was one of the premier lighting showrooms in downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And as a teenager, I went over to their showroom for the first time because they had just renovated it and incorporated some interesting lighting controls to demonstrate to residential clients, um, how they might incorporate a lighting control system into their home. And that was sort of my first introduction into commercial lighting. I was about 15 or 16. And where'd you go from there? After graduating high school, moved to Boston and studied electrical uh, engineering at Northeastern University and worked as a consulting engineer in the Boston area. Northeastern was a co-op school, so it was a five-year program where you had three and a half years of academics and a year and a half of work on and off between going to school and going to your job and going to school. Which part was more fun for you? They were both fun. Nice. Yeah, they were both fun. So when I got out of school, I had three and a half years of academics and a year and a half of work experience and already some contacts in the Boston area as a result of the work terms and started working as a consulting engineer. Northeastern fortunately had a power track for power distribution. And that was sort of my introduction into architectural building. But my family has several architects in it, so I was always around architecture. And so the combination of a family being in the electrical distribution business and having a showroom and some architects who did high-end design and then having an electrical technical background with power distribution, 
consulting engineering seemed the normal channel. So I ended up going to work for an engineering firm here in Boston. That's awesome. You spent, I think it was eight years there. Between two firms. Okay. Eight years of consulting in the Boston area. But going back to my introduction to lighting back at age 15, yeah. in the family showroom, as a consulting engineer, you wear many hats and lighting is one of them. And I tended to gravitate towards lighting rather than power distribution and started to focus on being an engineer who understood lighting well. What do you think excited you about lighting? Was it the beauty of it? Was it the science, the art behind it? I think that what I enjoyed most was working with designers, architects, interior designers, and helping them realize in the space that they were trying to build, right? And to be part of that process of lighting those spaces became passionate about it. I think that I've used this example for training people as well as in presentations to architects and designers that sometimes you can walk into a space that's just been completed. And if the lighting is done poorly, but the space is beautiful architecturally, it feels nice to be in the space, but it doesn't really kind of sing to you. But when you walk into a space that's beautiful architecture and the lighting is doing a tremendously good job of complementing that architecture, you walk into that space and you feel special about being there. There's something special about being in the space and you don't always, or you can't always put your finger on why it feels so good to be in that space. But many times it's because the lighting and the architecture are working in harmony with each other. And that's what excites me about lighting. I really like being part of that process. I don't think there's a lighting designer out there that wouldn't just hop on board with that statement and agree with you. Light definitely has the ability to make an impact in shape and form spaces. One person once told me, you know, I don't think people in general know what good lighting is, but everybody knows what bad lighting is. Everybody knows, oh, that's glary, or I don't like the color temperature. I guess they don't say color temperature. I don't like the blue light, is what they say, right? But there's definitely an awareness of lighting in the community beyond just design. It's the sun comes up and goes down every day. It's light is a necessity of our life. And it's something that's very technical. Speaking of technical, the channels, and when I say channels, the, the system that's in place to help procure lighting isn't just a procurement system. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of roles and responsibilities that go both ways when it comes to learning and then also managing construction projects. Dive right in. Talk to me about each one of those, should we say cogs in the wheel, spokes on the rim? Talk to me about each one of those parts that makes this system whole. Well, going back to the Greeks, originally there was the Academy of Sciences. And the Academy of Sciences in ancient Greece incorporated biology and physics and chemistry all under the same roof. And then at some point, each of those sects started to break away into their own places so that they could delve more deeply into what biology was and what chemistry was and what physics was, as an example. And over time, each of those sciences became its own entity, and something got a little bit lost about how they all got interconnected. I think about the lighting industry a little bit in that way, because you have architects, you have engineers, you have lighting designers. They all focus on their specific entity and role in the process of putting a building together. But a lot of times they don't either make the time to understand how it all fits into the Academy of Sciences, <laughs> that how it's all part of one big project. Yep. And so 
the architect has their focus, the, the interior designer has their focus, the lighting designer has their focus, the engineer has their focus. And then on the construction side of it, when whatever those design entities specify, there's a procurement process where there's an electrical distributor involved, an electrical contractor who eventually wins a project and has to install all the equipment that was specified. And there's a rep that was involved, or many reps, depending on what was specified, that are also engaging with every single one of those entities that I just mentioned, the architect, the interior designer, the lighting designer, the engineer, the distributor, the electrical contractor. And because all of these things are broken down into their own entities, a lot of times the electrical contractor doesn't have an appreciation for what any of the design team has done because they are focused on what their job is to purchase and install the lighting. The distributor doesn't have a sense of how much time a rep necessarily has worked with the design community to help bring the project to realization where it could be properly bid. The design team loses sight of the challenges that the distributor has as far as managing the procurement of the product, and we can go into a little more detail about that in a moment, or how challenging it is for electrical contractor to install all the equipment that they specify. And so I think that over three decades of being in the industry and having a technical background as an electrical engineer, working as a salesperson for many years, as well as a consulting engineer, and having people, family, as well as friends in the industry, I've sort of come to the realization that it's really important to educate not only the design team, but the distributor and contractor sides of the business so that everybody has a little bit more appreciation for whatever everybody's role is in the process. Absolutely. And so I think that offers some interesting conversation. I think when you look across all those trades, you mentioned there's all these people that are just involved in the design. There's the electrical contractor, and we can't forget that they're working for a general contractor, and there's contractors doing things around them. And nobody's really in this alone. Yet, as you mentioned, as human beings, we're fundamentally focused on what it is that's in front of us, whether it's walking to the fridge or getting in the car to push the gas pedal. I mean, we're always trying to move one foot and forward and the other, and we, we do, to some extent, have to concentrate on that. But taking a step back and, and trying to understand what it is everybody does sometimes helps you realize that, well, maybe I actually don't have to do everything here, but I just have to do my part and respect everyone else. When you look at this group of people, we might just generalize it into the designers and the build team. Then there's the rep that sits in the middle, which is a role you've held, but we can't forget the most important part. Without the manufacturers, we'd all be toast. We'd have nothing to put in the buildings. How does manufacturing play into all of this? Well, as a manufacturer's rep, the reason I gravitated towards being a rep is I love the ability to interact with the design community, but also provide feedback and work with the manufacturers that we represent to produce the products that the design community is looking for, and also produce them in a way that the contracting community can install them in a way that doesn't have them gravitate towards also all kinds of colorful adjectives in describing those manufacturers when they're trying to install their product. It's the dynamic between all of that and is what sort of motivates me every day because I really enjoy working both sides of the fence. And manufacturers are constantly looking for input from the marketplace about what new products are needed. Why couldn't they just send out a survey monkey and get 10,000 responses? That's tough. How are you going to go find all those people? It's too general. 
I think it was Mies van der Rohe who said God is in the details. Yeah. And when it comes to lighting products, there's a lot of detail. And most people don't appreciate that. But manufacturers who design product and architects who specify it and want it to be introduced into their project to help make their project quote unquote sing, mm-hmm. you know, to be in that space and not be sure why it feels so good, but knowing that there's a few people that can identify why it feels so good. And those are the, the best architects and the best lighting designers and the best engineers and the best reps who can step back and say, this all came together well because there was a lot of effort that went into this and a lot of understanding of product and a lot of understanding about design. I remember a movie that I watched back in the 80s called Amadeus. And it was a story about Mozart. And the story was told from the vantage point of Salieri's, who is the court musician for the king of Austria. And his pain, his constant pain, was that he was a musician that understood music but didn't have the talent that Mozart had, but had enough knowledge about music to understand how great Mozart really was. And it was a constant pain and torment for him his whole life. There are only a few people that know enough to walk into a space and say, wow, the lighting's beautiful in here, the architecture's beautiful here, they work together, and those are the projects that win awards, right? And there's a lot of people behind that effort, and I think that As part of that process, I think if emerging professionals in our industry had more training about all the players that are involved and we could create a culture of young professionals moving into the industry that appreciated how challenging a contractor's work is, what role the distributor plays in procuring that product that gets on the job and helps the specifiers not only with the design of the lighting, but also how those products integrate and are installed in the built environment, we would have a very good culture of new lighting designers. Well, I tell you what, I think there's an opportunity here to probably break each one of those down and do do a little lighting education 101. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll chat a little bit more about each part of the process and the value that they do bring to the channel and how, when you do it right, they can all work together. Sound good? Sounds good. Great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, The Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you fun content that's easy to watch and engage with, like this podcast or short two-minute videos. Check them out on YouTube or their website. That's L-Y-T-E-I.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Ira and I were chatting just a little bit more about the Academy of Sciences. The Greeks, they understood that while there were many aspects and avenues of science, it all came together and it all played together at the end of the day. Ira, dive into that a little bit more with me on how there is an Academy of Sciences throughout the architectural lighting industry. Well, I'll start, Sam, by saying that a lighting designer here in Boston once said to me that I can specify products, I can come up with a great design, but if I don't have enough detail on my drawings to guide the construction team into how to install those products properly, then I haven't delivered the best product. I need to develop specifications, select the right products, and make sure that it gets installed in the way that the design intends so that when somebody walks into that space, they feel special about being there as we discussed earlier, 
and not necessarily know why they feel so good about being in that space, but it's the execution of the design, not just the design itself, that's important. And the people that can help execute a design when it comes to architecture and architectural lighting is not just the design team, but it's the rep, it's the manufacturers, it's the distributor, it's the electrical contractor installing the products, it's the commissioning process of that project, it could be an integrator who's programming, color changing lighting, all of those entities have to come together to make the project quote unquote sing. And so it's really important, and I think over the years of working in the industry, I've noticed that people that do pay attention to all of those aspects of the project end up winning design awards because they are taking not just the design, but the execution of that design to a whole new level. And I think if we continue to promote the idea that the design community up and coming, as well as those who are already a part of it, can all continue to get better at it so that we have lots of projects winning design awards. And when you say get better at it, it probably means a couple of things, but I feel like A, the quality of design improves, but B, it's more recognized. And when it's more recognized, that creates more opportunity because people truly see the value in design when there's just more good design out there. Agreed. Many people don't uh, even know that lighting designers exist. No, they don't, which is incredible. So the expertise that a lighting designer and the attention and product knowledge and design knowledge that they bring to a project is invaluable. And working as a rep over the years, I've focused on knowing the products really well that I represent so that I can help designers understand how to use those products and how not to use those products. Mm -hmm. It's both. And most importantly, I feel most importantly, to also help them educate them about how those products get installed in the built environment. So there's a lot of focus on that end. And I found over the years that as I speak with designers who want to specify a project or I get questions from the design community Mm -hmm. about product, many of the questions are poised in a way that identifies that they don't truly understand how the products integrate into the architecture. And so helping educate in that way, I think helps the design community be better at what they do. One thing I do want to make sure I emphasize here is that one of the lost or unknown entities that is prevalent throughout the design process is understanding why an electrical distributor is part of the purchasing process when somebody specifies product and why they're procured through an electrical distributor rather than the electrical contractor who's installing the product. Why don't they just buy it directly from the lighting manufacturer? Give us a history lesson on construction. I think there's a little little bit of Greek mythology behind that one. (laughs) Let me try to put it in perspective. A manufacturer is producing product. Somebody's excited about the products that manufacturer is producing and they want to specify it. And they specify it on a project, say in Dallas, Texas. And there might be three or 4,000 electrical contractors in Dallas, Texas. Maybe a select few. Everything's bigger in Texas, (laughs) Maybe (laughs) 5,000. Whatever the number is, it's a large number. Yep. A manufacturer who receives an order to produce. The payment process that's set up, that's really based on an AIA, an American Institute of Architecture uh, process, is that when an electrical subcontractor is working for a general contractor, and say an example, there's $10,000 worth of lighting to be installed in a project, and the electrical contractor has an agreement with the general contractor to receive five payments 
And after he installs $2,000 worth of that product, he submits an invoice to the general contractor to get paid. Well, that invoice is taken by the general contractor. It's sent to the architect. The architect then in turn sends it to the lighting designer or engineer or both and said, hey, we've got an invoice here for $2,000. Can you please go out to the job site as part of your construction administration role and verify that those $2,000 worth of lighting has in fact been installed? So they do that. That might take three or four weeks or five weeks once it goes through the process. And then once it gets verified, yes, a notice goes back to the general contractor. I went to the job site. The claim for being paid 2000 of the $10,000 for the installation of lighting has been done. Then a request from the general contractor to the owner gets issued for payment. And then it might take another four or five weeks for that to get paid. I'm trying to explain this in a simple way so that you can see that the normal payment process of a general contractor paying an electrical subcontractor and the design team verifying the claim for the request takes time. Absolutely. Manufacturers who are buying lenses and diodes and drivers and extrusions that manufacture product, they have to keep a cash flow with all of their vendors going on a steady basis, or they couldn't fulfill all of the orders and receive all the materials they have to satisfy orders. So the distributor and the markup that a distributor puts on a project to procure it has to do with two things. One, the administrative effort of reaching out to all the reps to collect pricing for the electrical distributor who needs to purchase the equipment, and also the cost of the money that they're going to pay up front on behalf of the electrical contractor so that the projects can continue to flow and move independent of whether the electrical contractor who's installing that product has actually been paid yet. And most of the design community does not understand that the distributor markup offers value not only in the administrative effort of making sure that what is specified is purchased properly, et cetera, but also to front the money to purchase all the equipment. And then eventually the distributor tracks down the electrical contractor for payment. That could take anywhere from three to six months. Manufacturers do not have time to wait three to six months to get paid. <laughs> I was going to say, most people don't have the time. <laughs> That's right. You, you often hear the distributor referred to as the bank. And, and they are, because they're, they're floating the money. And they're a transaction. But the reason that bank exists is because it needs to, because we can't sit around and wait. Now, we can't streamline it like Amazon either two-hour delivery. With credit card payments. With credit card payments. that There's a lot more money involved. The things that are being purchased are built to order. They're more complex. And the reason is because what's going into building is always unique. No two buildings are the same. No two designs are the same. No two opinions are the same. We've set ourselves up for the most opportunity to be successful, but that does, no pun intended, come at a cost. That's correct. And it's a valid cost that the design community has to recognize is a valid cost because if $100,000 worth of lighting needs to be purchased, it's the distributor that pays the $100,000, mm-hmm. even though they haven't collected the $100,000 yet from their electrical contractor who's installing that product. It may take them three or four months to get that payment. And so the markup, in addition to the administrative costs, helps cover that. And it's important that the design community recognize the importance of the electrical distributor. So going back to my example in Dallas, If an order is being placed in Dallas, a manufacturer who manufactures product may have an established credit relationship with maybe 30 or 40 distributors in the greater Dallas area, but not three or four or 5,000 electrical contractors. Absolutely. So it streamlines the process of credit 
and developing relationships that are longstanding so that the flow of business can continue. And uh, it's important for the design community to recognize the value of what a distributor brings to their projects. I think, as you mentioned, there's a lot that goes into all of this. On the flip side, you've got the distributor and the contractor who are more on, on the build side, less involved in the design side, and may often take an opportunity to view a, a spec or a part number as simply that, a spec or a part number. And they don't necessarily always take into consideration what it is the designer's done to get to that result, to put that on the page. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I think, as I said, it works both ways, right? The contractor side and procurement side has to have an appreciation for what the design intent is. And the design team has to make the effort to actually help communicate that, which most of the time they don't. What do you think that is? I think everybody gets just caught up in their role or they don't understand that part of making the execution of a project happen the way that they want to happen, that part of their role is to, in fact, spend the time to communicate to the contracting team and the distributor team what the important focuses are for the project. I don't see that happening. And sometimes the rep helps intervene because the rep caters to the design community as well as the contractor and distributor community. And you have visibility. You're maybe up higher and you see where the disconnect is. You see the dots and you know they're not connected. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So it's important for the design community to recognize that if they spent the time at a post-bid meeting, for example, general contractor has selected an electrical subcontractor. Many times the owner will sit in on a meeting if there's three electrical contractors that are bidding on a job and they're all three close in price. The general contractor might call those three contractors in with the owner and the design team to have a scope review to make sure. Or in fact, if there's a low bidder, you want to make sure that that low bidder actually is carrying everything in their price before you award them the project. So either during a pre-bid meeting or a post-bid meeting, if there's really important aspects of a project that the design team wants to communicate, I think they should take the opportunity to do that. I think that if they engage with the distributor who's procuring the equipment for the, on behalf of the electrical contractor and the electrical contractor understands the end results rather than just a circle or a rectangle on a piece of paper showing where the fixture goes. I'll give you another example. For instance, if there's a trimless installation of a product. Now, a trimless installation involves multiple trades. You have... Because trimless is essentially something that's recessed, typically in a ceiling or wall, that appears to magically appear almost, like poof. Or maybe not necessarily magically, but it's integrated into the architecture rather than just being a light fixture in the ceiling, right? It's actually part of the ceiling because it gets mudded in and spackled in where there's not an overlapping metal flange on the drywall ceiling, but it's part of the drywall ceiling. So you're mentioning probably general construction, you're mentioning you know the finishing trade, you're mentioning the electrical contractor. And you said just a minute ago, it's important for designers to take those opportunities in pre and post-bid meetings to communicate that information. I've got to ask, why isn't it all just in the plans? Well, it, sometimes it's not in the plans because a designer might not recognize from a construction standpoint what's involved with installing that product, and so they don't incorporate it into the documents. They, I'll give you a quick example. There was a restaurant in New York City where it was a double height space, so the ceiling was up at about 22 feet. A scaffolding needed to be rigged up for the contractor to install all of the recessed downlights in the ceiling in this double height space. 
The lighting designer showed up on site to do a punch list and check off if everything was done the way it was supposed to. And all of the recessed downlights that were specified were in fact specified as trimless. So it had a perforated metal flange around the fixture for the mud to be captured into that perforated metal and then get sanded down and painted out so that there was no overlapping flange on the finished ceiling. The electrical contractor didn't read the instructions, probably threw them out with the box. And so about 200 downlights got installed in this double height ceiling space and all of the perforated metal trims that were supposed to be spackled and mudded into the finished drywall were exposed on the finished drywall ceiling because the electrical contractor thought it was a decorative trim. Yes, of course. And just a very short 15-minute meeting to bring the general contractor and the ar- uh, for the architect or lighting designer to have a post-bid meeting and say, hey, we've specified trimless products. There's a note on the drawing that says that the electrical contractor is to coordinate with the general contractor to ensure per the manufacturer's instructions to spackle and trim this out. You know, they might have expressed my personal experiences that you need to feather back the mud about 12 to 15 inches so that you don't see a bump on the ceiling where these metal trims are placed. All those kinds of things. And that's just one example of sort of an integrated product that if the design team doesn't understand how it gets installed, if, if the contracting team doesn't understand how or they've never installed it before, just a short 15-minute conversation about it would have clarified all of that, that issue because that restaurant in New York, it was a level five finish on the ceiling. Oh my goodness. Five layers of plaster. And they had to bring scaffolding back in, get back up on the scaffolding, refinish the entire ceiling to mud in all the fixtures because there was a misunderstanding or a, a lack of attention to the detail that was required to properly install the installation of those products. That's just one example. I could go on about many examples. Yeah, I I think uh, it's a great example, and it it really illustrates how complicated lighting can be but doesn't necessarily have to be. And communication is key. Communication is key in a lot of things, but especially in construction. And I think what's fascinating is uh, I'm sitting here asking myself, and I'm sure other people are, well, why didn't they have that conversation? But like we said earlier, Everybody's laser focused and people do want to get their jobs done. And while we wish we all knew everything, we don't. You don't know what you don't know. And you've got to focus on getting your job done. So site visits maybe just aren't in the budget or there isn't time for it or or a number of things. The installation instructions weren't read. I mean, mistakes are made, but the reality is we can correct a lot of stuff. If we just take a little bit more time all across the board, no matter what our role is. When you talk about the Academy of Sciences and and how they all came together, bring it whole for me. How do we bring the Academy of Sciences back to lighting a little bit here? Well, I think that, especially I think all of us have realized during COVID that we still can, through technology, communicate with each other fairly easily. Yeah. And I know that there has never been any lighting designer or interior designer or architect who has taken a class in school during their academic training that says this is what you need to do to properly interact with the construction team who's building the projects you're designing. I would encourage the design team to not wait for anybody to ask you to do it, but just assume that it should be part of your role as a designer to communicate all the things that you deem important to embrace manufacturers and reps who come into your office to train you about product, to ask questions not only about the lighting component and the optics of a product, but also the mechanics of the product. 
educate yourself about how products are integrated into the built environment because that'll make you better specifiers. It'll make you feel more confident about communicating to the construction team because getting back to your question about the Academy Sciences, how does it come all together? It comes all together when there's an appreciation for how manufacturers manufacture product. The people that are specifying those products communicate to the construction team who's installing those products that this is how it's supposed to be done. And when all of that comes together in a more harmonious way, then science is science and lighting is lighting design. And lighting design is part art and part science. Construction is pretty much all art. And I don't think people necessarily think about construction as an art, but it really is. Nothing is prefabbed. All the most beautiful buildings in the world are custom. Every detail of every beautiful building. I mean, we're sitting here in Boston. I'm looking across the street at all these stone facades that I don't even know how old are they, but they're beautiful. And they're all unique and different. And I've got to imagine each one of those stones started off as something else and was custom cut and formed to create that beauty. Ira, it's been great to catch up with you and talk a little bit more about what it means to define the Academy of Sciences and lighting. What's the best way people can get in touch with you if they want to chat more or have questions? Well, I'm currently serving as a board member of the IES. And so if you go onto the IES website, you can find me there and reach out to me or reach out to me at irothman at apexltg.com. How do you spell Rothman? R-O-T-H-M-A-N. And that's Apex, A-P-E-X. Correct. Ira, thanks again so much for your time. Hang in there. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Sam. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, if you enjoyed this podcast, do me a quick favor and go back to whatever platform you listen to this on and click like or subscribe. It's the best way to make sure that you never miss another episode of The Light Pod, where we interview people who are all things lighting. Or should I just say interested in lighting, think it's cool, and have a conversation or a story to share. Until next time, cheers.